Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a non-profit, non-partisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. In 2005, Time Magazine named him to its list of 100 most influential people. Malcolm Gladwell was born in England, raised in Canada, was a successful middle distance runner in high school, and he is the son of accomplished people. His mother, Joyce, is a psychotherapist whose parents were teachers, and his dad, Graham, is a respected professor of mathematics. Ladies and gentlemen, our speaker personally knows the value of educators. Malcolm Gladwell. Thank you for that very kind introduction. It's a real pleasure to be here and be particularly honored to be part of the uh, the International Educator of the Year uh, award program, um, and it's a pleasure to be back in Dallas. I uh, last time I was here was uh, last fall when all of you were still under the illusion that the Cowboys were going to make the Super Bowl. Uh, I say that because yesterday I was in Kansas City and they're currently under the illusion that the Royals are going to make the World Series. And uh, just curious, is that what's going on? Like. Does everyone have these illusions? Uh, I'm, from, I'm from Toronto, and we never assume that our teams are going to win anything. Um, so uh, I thought this morning I would uh, I'd talk about an idea. You know, you publish a book, and then you think about it and puzzle over it, and you, certain things that you wrote resonate with you. Um, and I, I thought I'd talk a little bit about an idea that I, t- that I write about in David and Goliath, which I've thought a lot about um, since I finished the book. Um, and I, 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 it's, it's what I would call the, the weapons of the spirit paradox. Uh, and it's, um, it's, a, it's a problem that I think affects uh, nearly everything we do and think about in society in one form or another. And to sort of explain what I mean by that, let me start with a, uh, an example from the military. You know, in the 1960s, the Pentagon put together a panel of historians, um, some of the most uh, famous historians in the world, and they asked them to do a study of uh, asymmetrical wars, wars in which one side was significantly more powerful than the other. And they, they wanted to know who wins those wars, those kinds of wars, and why does the winner win? So the panel goes off, and they spend years on this, and they come up with... their answer was contained in six volumes. So you get a sense of the size of this particular study. And their conclusion was quite simple, and that was that wars are one for, uh, the key to to the winning of wars was not who had the most weapons, was not material. It was psychological, that overwhelmingly wars were won by the side that had the heart and spirit 
to fight the longest and the hardest, who just didn't want to give up. And that if you were uh, a country that entered into a battle uh, with all of the material advantages in the world, all the troops and all of the weapons and all the whatever you want, none of those would matter if you didn't have the heart to fight the battle the way the battle was supposed to be fought. Um, and this isn't the first time, by the way, that this conclusion has been reached in among military historians. There's been a lot of work recently looking at the same question, and a couple of military historians have produced these data sets where they look at the last three or two, two or three hundred years, and they make a list of all of the battles that have been fought in that period between countries where one side is at least ten times larger than the other, right? So where there is a very, very large country and a very, very weak country. And what they found is that where the smaller of the countries, when the smaller of the countries chooses to fight unconventionally, to fight essentially a guerrilla war, they will win 64% of the time. In other words, a country can be one-tenth the size of its enemy, and it will win the majority of times if it chooses to fight uh, uh, in an unconventional way to use the tactics of, of, of guerrillas. Now, I mention that, of course, because, as I said, I'm Canadian, and Canada is one-tenth size <laughs> of the United States. And so that this be a warning to all of you. Should you, <laughs> should you choose to invade us? As I know, I know the thought sometimes crosses your mind. Uh, and then we choose to fight unconventionally, as we most certainly will, the money's going to be on us, right? Just remember that. What matters in conflicts is not what's up here or what possessions you have. What matters is in your heart, right? The, um, like I said, I think this principle applies almost anywhere you look. Um, I know we're in Texas, so I thought I'd use a great example from football. You know, the, every college quarterback who's ever drafted in the NFL has to take an IQ test, right? It's called the Wonderlick. It's not the same as the IQ test that all of us took in school. It's for it's for football players. It's a little it's a little it's just a little simpler. But the general, the gist of it is the same. It's supposed to measure your cognitive ability. And the idea behind doing this is, the theory is, if you're going to play quarterback in the NFL, your intelligence is a real asset. You know, scouts want to know how smart you are because you've got a, the cognitive task of being an NFL quarterback is, is actually quite complex, right? You have to know thousands of plays, et cetera, et cetera. So what is the correlation between how well you score on the Wonderlick and how good an NFL quarterback you are? Well, that's a long, I could spend the entire afternoon giving you all the data, but just I'll do a shortcut and just tell you the names of the five NFL quarterbacks who have scored among the lowest. So one looks out of 50. These are people who have scored below 15. And I think you get, by the way, nine points for signing your name. So this is not, <laughs> this is not an impressive accomplishment. Um, so here are, your, here are your lowest scoring quarterbacks pretty much of all time. Randall Cunningham, Donovan McNabb, Jim Kelly, Dan Marino, and Terry Bradshaw. Um, now, for those of you, I don't know, maybe there's one person in this room who's not a football fan. 
uh, for that one person's benefit. I've just named five of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Um, now, does that mean that not being smart is an advantage if you're going to be an NFL quarterback? No. It's good to be smart in all kinds of things, including being an NFL quarterback. In fact, the list of quarterbacks who have scored very high on the Wonderlick is also impressive. Aaron Rodgers, uh, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, even Tony Romo <laughs> did really well on the... All I'm saying by making this point is that there are... that being intelligent matters if you're an NFL quarterback, but all kinds of other things matter way more. Courage matters more. Leadership ability matters more. Resilience matters more. Those kinds of intangibles, those kinds of things that so often we shrug off, those kinds of things that reside in your heart are a better predictor of whether you can succeed on one of the most challenging athletic stages in the world than how well you do uh, on an IQ test, right? Now, I'm sure if I went around this room and I asked everyone who is an adult and has a job uh, that same question, why do you think you have made a success of your life? You'd answer it the same way. You wouldn't say, I'm successful because my IQ is 140, unless you're Ted Cruz. Doesn't he say that a lot? Um, <laughs> heard that. Heard that. No, sorry. I'm from New York, I'm uh, You wouldn't say that I'm successful because I went to a fancy school, Yale or Harvard. No, you would, when you look back on your life, you would say, the reason I've achieved what I have achieved is because of questions of character. Because I worked hard, I persevered, I took chances, I believed in myself and my family and my, and my colleagues. All the weapons of the spirit are the things that made a difference in your own personal uh, battle. Um, and then, of course, there's the most famous example of all. The example that I use is the title of my book, the subject of my book, The Fight Between David and Goliath, right? Goliath is the mightiest warrior in the land, but David wins. And why does David win? Well, because David has, first of all, the imagination to change the rules of the game. He brought a sling to a sword fight. And a sling, we, we have forgotten this because it's been years since we used them, but a sling was an incredibly powerful weapon. The rock left David's uh, sling uh, with uh, a force and a power equal to uh, a 38 caliber handgun. I mean, it's not a, a sling is not a child's toy. It's an incredibly potent weapon. Secondly, David wins because he's the only guy on the Israeli side, Israelite side, who isn't intimidated by this big giant. He's like, David's got all kinds of courage. And thirdly, he wins because he has the spirit of the Lord in his heart, right? He is infused with religious faith and belief, which makes him understand that he has what it takes to win that particular uh, combat. So here's the paradox. I said the weapons of the spirit is a paradox. Here's the paradox. I've just, you know, in five minutes, I've given you a couple of examples of cases where what's in here matters more than what's up here or in your wallet or what have you. If it's so often the case that, that what's in your heart matters more than anything else, why don't, we, why don't we take that idea seriously? Why do, we, why do we keep overlooking it? You know, the Pentagon went to all that trouble to commission this enormous six-volume report involving the greatest historians in the world that took years and years and years that told them exactly how weapons, how battles between very powerful countries and very small ones play out. 
And what did the Pentagon do? They went and fought the Vietnam War in a way that ignored absolutely every lesson that report had told them, right? And all of everyone, you know, we're all in, uh, I gave you all those numbers about how the, some of the greatest quarterbacks who ever lived have scored unbelievably low on the IQ test. But NFL general managers still give that IQ test every year to, and to quarterback prospects and take the result really seriously, right? Even though it doesn't predict all that much, right? And I said that almost everyone in this room, every adult in this room would attribute their own success to something that was in their heart and not to something like the school they went to or what they scored on their SATs. But if you talk to an 18-year-old and you ask an 18-year-old in our culture, what do you think is going to be the biggest determinant of their own success? They will tell you it's their SAT score and the name of the school they went to, right? They don't get it. We somehow haven't managed to communicate that lesson to them that it really doesn't matter what school you go to. What matters is what you do after you leave school, right? You know, I ran across this, te- this book recently that was called The Myth of Achievement Test, and it was, a lot of it was about the GED, right? The supposed to be the, equi- the equivalency diploma you can study on your own as opposed to going to high school, and it's supposed to be the same as a high school Education And what this book was pointing out was in absolutely every way that you can possibly measure, people who have the GED do not do as well in the world as people who actually got a diploma from a real live high school. And why is that? Because the GED does not measure what matters. What matters is not whether you can do a pencil and paper test that makes you the equivalent of people who've gone to a high school. What matters is your character and your perseverance and your curiosity and your sociability and your uh, ability to follow rules and get along with others and all those kinds of things which are a part of what it means to be a successful student at a high school and completely missed by someone sitting at home filling out a test. Right? Well, that, why, why is it that that finding should be a surprise to us? How is it possible in 2014 we're still under the, we have somehow convinced ourselves that a paper and pencil test is as good as an actual real live learning experience at a school? And then there's David and Goliath, right? David, here's David with superior technology to Goliath, right? A sling with the stopping power of a 38 caliber handgun up against a guy and he hasn't told the guy that he's changed the rules on him, right? And in his heart, he's got the Spirit of the Lord, right, guiding him on. He's got these three advantages of technology and courage and of faith, and yet we persist in calling him the underdog. Why is he the underdog? Right? What about David suggests underdog to you? Why isn't he automatically the favorite if he has all of those advantages of the weapons of the Spirit? Right? I didn't mean to turn this into a sermon, but... <laughs> the, The crucial line is in Samuel, in the account of David and Goliath. What the Bible tells us is, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. There's a reason that verse is in there, which is that the scriptures are reminding us that we make this mistake all the time. Right? We get so obsessed with outward appearances and how big someone is, we forget to look at the heart because the heart what, is what matters. You know, I don't think this is a 
trivial problem. I think it's an incredibly consequential problem. Um, I think we have such difficulty accepting this fact um, about what really matters in any kind of conflict or competition or simple um, uh, uh, experience in the world. You know, when I, when I was writing my book, I became fascinated by the story of, of this little town in uh, southeastern France called Le Chambon. And uh, uh, during the Second World War, this town plays an extraordinary role. Some of you will have either read the book or know the story. Um, Le Chambon is part of a cluster of little villages in what's called the Vivere Plateau in uh, the southeastern corner of France, up in the, um, near the Swiss Alps. And it, for several uh, centuries, it, it has been home to uh, groups, groups of uh, Protestant dissidents, principally the Huguenots. And uh, during the Second World War, Germany invades France, and the Germans allow the French to set up their own government. It's essentially a puppet regime to govern the southern half of France. Called, it's called the Vichy regime. And the Vichy is basically a group of collaborators. They go along with the Nazis on everything. In some cases, they're worse than the Nazis. They help them round up Jews. They pass all these laws um, that are incredibly anti-Semitic. They, uh, they send all kinds of Jewish families into internment camps and on and on and on. And they pass this law that says that every day French school children have to salute the Vichy flag, which is essentially the standing for the Nazi occupation. And it's an incredibly shameful period in French history. Um, and everyone, not everyone, but overwhelmingly the, the people, citizens of France, go along with what Vichy is saying, except for this little town called Le Chambon, up in the, up in the hills. And the local pastor, the Huguenot pastor, is a guy named um, Andre Trochmin. He's this big, lumbering, difficult guy. And on Sunday after the France falls to the Germans, Trochmi gets up and he gives a sermon and basically says, if anything the Germans tell us to do conflicts with our faith, we're not doing it. Just be clear, we're just not going to go along with it. And when the law passes that says the French school children have to salute the flag every morning, he just says, that's not happening here. We're not. And then there's another law that says that every French school teacher has to sign an, an oath of loyalty to the state, essentially an oath of loyalty to the German occupiers. And Trochmi says... That's, again, that's not, we're not going to do that. Um, and then they say that there's going to be a celebration to mark the anniversary of the German occupation. And every town in France has got to ring the bell um, to join in the celebration at noon. And, uh, and Trochmi says, that's, once again, we're not going to do that. Um, and word gets out in France that there's this little town in the middle of nowhere that is just saying that they're not going along with anything the Nazis are saying. And so Jews who are being persecuted throughout France start to move to this little town in Le Chambon. And then Trochmi comes down the mountain and he starts to go to these internment camps where they're holding Jews before they ship them off to the concentration camps. And he says, look, if you can get any of the children out, I'll take them. I'll just take them back to my town and we'll give them to families. And then if the Nazis come, we'll just hide them in the woods. Um, and so that's what they do, and they smuggle them across the border into Switzerland. And by the end of the war, it's estimated that many thousands of Jews uh, were saved by this little tiny village in the middle of nowhere, right? And there's this incredible story from that uh, from Le Chambon during the war. And it's a story of what happened in 1942. One of the ministers of the Vichy government, this guy named Georges Lamarand, 
comes to visit. He's coming on a state visit, and he's dressed up in his big blue uniform and comes up the mountain to Le Chambon, and he's expecting them all to kind of bow down and give him all the, He has a whole itinerary mapped out. He's going to have a banquet. He's going to go for a march down the street and uh, meet all the local youth. And, of course, the people in Le Chambon are like, this guy's, the, you know, he's the enemy. They have no interest in him, and everything's a disaster. The banquet, they serve him terrible food, and then Trachmi's daughter happens to accidentally spill soup down the front of his beautiful uniform and just the whole thing is a nightmare and finally he goes to the reception he's supposed to meet all the kids in town and these kids get up and they stand up in front of him and they read this letter that they've written and the letter basically says we've heard that in Paris right like a couple weeks before the Vichy police had helped the Nazis round up 12,000 Jewish families because they were going to send them all to Auschwitz, and it was this horrifying thing. They rounded them up and they put them in this big kind of um, stadium and just held them there under the most horrible conditions before they shipped them off. So the kids stand up there and they read this letter and they say, we've heard about this horrible thing you guys did in Paris and we're really concerned you're going to do it here in our town. And this is my favorite part of the letter. So these, it's kids reading this to the, one of the most powerful people in France. We feel obliged to tell you that there are among us a certain number of Jews, but we make no distinction between Jews and non-Jews. It is contrary to the gospel teaching. If our comrades, whose only fault is to be born in another religion, receive the order to let themselves be deported or even examined, they will disobey the order, and we will try to hide them as best we can. Basically, these kids stand up to this guy and say, we have Jews here and you're not getting them. Right? Now, why did the people of Le Chambon stand up to the Nazis like this? Why did they do it, right? This is Europe in 1942. All around Europe, there is evidence of just how unbelievably brutal the Nazis are and what they do to people who try and cross them. And yet, you know, there's every expectation that people who do this, who hide Jews, will be killed, right? So why did they do it? Well, the answer is that the Huguenots this little group of Protestants in this corner of France, had been persecuted themselves for hundreds of years in the 17th and 18th century. They had been uh, run out of town. Their pastors had been arrested and burned at the stake. Their wives had been sent to prison for life. Their kids had been taken away from them and, and uh, brought up in the Catholic Church. They had, uh, and they had, as a result of this hundreds of years of persecution, they had learned all kinds of things. They had learned how to stick together. They had learned how to hide in the woods. They had learned how to have secret services. And they had also learned that in spite of 200 years of persecution, they could survive. Right? Their faith could sustain them. Their God would protect them. Their communities could find a way to continue on just by hiding out away from, from their enemies. So their basic feeling was, we made it, right? We survived by our faith and our guile and our imagination, by our weapons of the Spirit. It's not going to be any different this time. This is a great quote from Andre Trotmi's wife, who says, when the first Jewish family showed up at her door in, summer, in the winter of 1940, um, she was asked years later, why did you let them in, knowing what you were... She says, well, I, I didn't know it would be dangerous. Uh, you know, nobody thought of that which is an incredible thing to say in the middle of the Nazi occupation. It never occurred to them it would be dangerous to take in Jewish families, right? 
She didn't think of herself as some kind of underdog. She felt that because she has, was armed with the weapons of the spirit, she was every bit the equal of the Nazis. Now, here's the incredible thing, though. The Huguenots are not the only committed Christians in France in the 1940s. There are millions of Christians in France in the 1940s who are reading the same Bible and singing the same hymns and believing in the same God and who, who have exactly the same preparation for facing up to the Nazis as the Huguenots did. And there are countless others who, who are as every bit as anti-Nazi as the Huguenots were and who could have been equally as vociferous in their uh, opposition to the Nazis. So why is, is, why is it that only this one little village has the courage to stand up? And the answer is that no one else understood how powerful the weapons of the Spirit are. They were the kinds of people who would look at David and Goliath and just assume Goliath was going to win. They didn't give the appropriate amount of credit to things like faith and imagination and ingenuity and perseverance and courage, right? And if they had, if people had understood truly how important the weapons of the Spirit are, think how different World War II might have been. Think how many other people might have been spared from the Holocaust. You know, I didn't, when I was writing my book, I didn't set out to make this argument. I thought I was going to do a kind of technical analysis of asymmetrical warfare and talk about guerrilla tactics and why they worked and didn't work. But I kept on coming across these stories and realizing that um, at, the, at the root of all of them was the same thing, which was the kind of power that people have in their hearts. And it made me realize that this is something that we overlook at our peril, Right? We are so obsessed with the material possessions that we have and the uh, money and the resources that we can acquire that we overlook the fact that the most important thing in the world is what's right here. So, thank you. What an important message for all of us, and particularly for our students. We have time for just a few questions, because we also want to be sure that we have the Etihad drawing. The first question will come from a student. Where are you? I think we have a microphone. And if we can hear that question. And if you would identify your school and your name, please. Yeah. Hi, my name is Avita Anand. I'm from the Hockaday School. And do you believe that the American school system, both socially and academically, perpetuates the notion of a superior and an inferior, similar to the theory of social Darwinism? Thank you. Oh, wow. <laughs> 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 um, do, I, do I think that the American school system uh, uh, perpetuates notions of inequality? Um, I think I would have to be... Uh, I would have, I, I, I think it does. I mean, I think that's the kind of um, sad fact that we have to live with, that even as we have constructed what is in many ways, at least at the elite level, uh, the greatest school system in the world, we have uh, failed to solve a more fundamental problem, which is that um, some people get a great education and many others don't. And those kinds of um, advantages um, perpetuate over the course of people's lives. Um, and we are... Um, lift, as we lift some people up, we create a, 
real chasm between them and everybody else. Um, and I think it's going to take a long time for us to, um, to resolve that problem uh, properly. Based upon your comments, would you say we have a lot more to worry about ISIS than we would have otherwise? That's interesting, yeah. So uh, a really good question. The kinds of what we're witnessing now, right now, are in these um, uh, small, highly motivated uh, groups of terrorists around the world, insurgents around the world. It's exactly that. You can go a long way and do a lot of damage with uh, when you take the weapons of the spirit and, I mean, weapons of the spirit and use them for, I mean, obviously none of us are, are happy with the way that these, they're using their particular um, uh, uh, weapons. But yes, that, that's the, that, is the, uh, that is what history teaches us, that over and over again, people who are um, determined and motivated and uh, zealous uh, can go a long way. I will only say this about ISIS, though, is that um, they are so extreme that I think of them as the end of, uh, they are the end of the wave, not the beginning. What, we are, what I think what we're seeing with groups like that is this kind of um, uh, radical kind of Islamic fundamentalism uh, burning out, not, um, not, starting, not starting from scratch. Um, this is always what happens at the end of the, of the cycle. Um, and there, you can just see how the rest of the, of the Arab world is reacting in horror to the way these people are operating. That's the, so that's a positive, I think. We'll take one more question from this side of the room, if I see any. My question is, uh, in the story of David and Goliath, technically, the, David is fighting against the system. Uh, in Texas, we have a situation where, in Denton, they successfully fought to ban fracking. And then now, there's a bill being passed to undo and authorize fracking everywhere in Texas. Mm -hmm. So in your case, have you seen situations where David wins and then loses again, and Daisy win again? <laughs> you mean if Goliath had asked for a rematch, or if the Philistines had asked for a rematch, what would have happened? Well, they'd be a lot smarter the second time around about whether they expected their uh, opponent to bring a sword or something else to the fight. Um, yes, it is a permanent feature, particularly of this society, that you get many cracks that you know, no battle is ever entirely over. Um, but if you're expecting me to weigh in on the question of fracking in the state of Texas, uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to disappoint you. Uh, <laughs> I know better. I'm going to stay away from that one. <laughs> um, well, thank you all very much. Thank you, Malcolm. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.